Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. So this topic of cancel culture has been preying on my mind and maybe my soul as well for quite some time now. And it's partly because I have at least two people I consider friends who have been, I think, arguably canceled. Um, But it's also as I've watched it unfold. I mean, in some ways, cancel culture represents almost a necessity of at least kind of redressing power dynamics in this country and giving people who have less power the opportunity to speak truth, as they say, uh, to and about people with more power. But that can't be the only reason to do it. And I think at times, based on some of the conversations I've had, some people relish cancel culture just because they can do that. Um, It also clearly exists on a continuum. We shouldn't need cancel culture to deal with Harvey Weinstein. We should be able to deal with Harvey Weinstein based on the normal resources available to deal with evildoers. Uh, But there's a continuum. You know, I don't know, Bob Garfield from Montepedia is like in the news today. He might sit somewhere in the middle of that continuum. Uh, then there are people who get canceled by for much lesser and less persistent offenses, sometimes one-time offenses. Uh, the other thing about cancel culture is most of the people who've ever been canceled are people whose names you don't know uh, because it's really, really hard to cancel somebody really famous. I don't care how transphobic you think J.K. Rowling is. You're not canceling her. She's the best-selling author in the history of language, I think, or something like that, <laughs> some you know, daunting statistic. So you're not canceling her. And and in a way, part of that also, I'll shut up and let the guest talk in just two seconds, but a couple of things I wanted to just say. In a way, that kind of reprises the very problem that cancel culture wants or one of the problems it wants to address. If I can get in way more trouble and have much worse things happen to me for saying the exact same things that J.K. Rowling says, and then somebody even less well-known than I am could get even way worse trouble than I would for saying those exact same things, we haven't really addressed the power dynamic very well. You're not going to cancel Van Morrison, you know, no matter how big a jerk he is, because, I don't know, a lot of people really love his music. So... So that's a problem, too. Anyway, um, so before I introduce the guests, I'll tell you the other reason that I decided we had to do this show, and, and that is the clip we're about to play here. Uh, this would be trainer Bob Baffert. I might add a trainer with a history, a history of violations of substance abuse, you know, or sort of doping, doping of horses, uh, a history uh, of actions uh, directed against him for that. Uh, here's... Uh, him talking about the disqualification of his Kentucky Derby winner. Churchill Downs came out with that statement that was pretty harsh. And um, I think they had to just, you know, it's, you know, with all the noise going out, out, you know, we live in a different world now. This, this America is different. And uh, this, it was like a cancel culture kind of a, a thing. So they're reviewing it. All right. So that happened on Fox News, where cancel culture has now become this kind of all-purpose critique uh, of everything. Uh, You can't cancel a horse. In him saying that's cancel culture, uh, 
I don't know. It's, you know, when he actually got caught doing something, it's like the Menendez brothers saying they're being persecuted because they're orphans. Um, it just doesn't really make any sense. There's a kind of circular logic to it all. And it's an example of the emptying out of this term until maybe it has almost no meaning whatsoever. All right, I'll shut up now. Uh, joining us now, friend of the show and friend of mine. Um, Gene Seymour is a film and jazz critic and a cultural critic for CNN.com, The New Republic and The Nation. Uh, Clyde McGrady, who I'm looking forward to becoming friends with, uh, is a style features writer for The Washington Post, focusing on race and identity. They're both here with us today. Um, I, I think, uh, Clyde McGrady, I'm going to have you get us started just because you've done such interesting writing about, like, you really sort of pinned down rather beautifully exactly where this use of the verb cancel comes from. So tell us about that. Right. So, um, you know, thank you so much for, for having uh, having me on. But, yeah, um, so I don't know, just being like a, a, a young black person, I'd, I'd known like the phrase kind of you know started with this really popular gangster movie new jack city that starred you know wesley snipes in in, and it came out in 1991 and he has you know a pretty iconic line in it called cancel that you know b word um i don't know what the standards are on the show about profanity but um uh, um, I, I used to think I knew. <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> yeah, probably um, erring on the side of caution these days is a good idea. Yeah. So, yeah, don't want to get canceled. So um, I, I tracked down the screenwriter of, of that movie, and his name is Barry Michael Cooper, and I talked to him about writing that line. And I was like, you know, how did you come up with the term cancel? And, you know, we were talking, and he said, oh, I was listening to um, – this Nile Rogers song in his band Chic called Your Love is Canceled, which I thought was interesting. And I, I looked up the lyrics to it and and listened to it. And then, you know, I decided to give Nile Rogers a call, who is this legendary, you know, songwriter and producer. He's responsible for for so many hits of like the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Um, and so he just told me about. I, you know, I asked him, like, how did you come up with that song? And he was like, I remember it very vividly. He was on a bad date one night at a club in the 80s. And um, his, his date was being very disrespectful to the staff there. And, you know, he's obsessed with TV. And he was home one night and he thought of the lyrics. And that's when he came up with Your Love is Canceled. So it goes back pretty far to this, you know, obscure disco era song from the early 80s, actually. And then, I mean, kind of worked its way, I think, based on your writing, a little bit through Black Twitter, too. Um, yeah. You, you start hearing about people being canceled. By the way, we're going to go out of this segment with Your Love is Canceled. I love Nile Rodgers anyway. But um, uh, you start hearing it kind of used that way, a little bit more closer to the way it is it's being used now, about sort of policing people's behavior by canceling them. Yeah, but at first it, it didn't start that way. It was just this kind of like playful thing or, you know, it was it was more of a personal thing to say, like, say there's a, a celebrity that you're a fan of, um, you know, like, I don't know, Justin Timberlake, we'll just say Justin Timberlake and Justin Timberlake does something that's, you know, that you find like offensive or whatever. And then you're like, you know what? I'm through with Justin Timberlake. He's canceled. Now, does that mean that you have called 
the the radio station to say, hey, don't play Justin Timberlake's records, or are you tweeting at his record label to drop him, or are you tweeting at Jay-Z saying, hey, how could you do a song with Justin Timberlake? No, it was much more of this kind of personal, playful thing, but it eventually kind of merged with these, um, with people using social media to um, to call out behavior that they found problematic. And that's when you see this dismergence with uh, cancel culture becoming an actual term. So, you know, Gene, um, I mean, I think one of the things that we struggle to get at is how cancel culture might be different from things that we've seen before. Certainly, it closely mirrors something that was done on the right for a long time, banning books uh, or, you know, destroying Dixie Chick CDs or whatever they were doing in 2003. You know, there's this kind of like, I'm going to try to eradicate you. I'm going to try to get rid of you because I don't like your views. Um, this seems to come a little bit more typically from the left, but often policing members of the left. As I keep saying, you can't cancel Jordan Peterson from the left because his support doesn't come from the left. It comes from some someplace else. So I don't know, Gene, as you look at it, what are we talking about here that's different from what we've seen in the past? Or are we not talking about something different from the past? Well, I, I, I have three thoughts about that. First of all, let me just say that that Clyde's story and Clyde's piece about this in the Washington Post is exactly what cultural journalism should be yeah. doing. It should get at these things at their source or so-called source. But um, as, as, as I've told many people over, over the last couple of years, there's nothing new to this. Uh, there really isn't anything new to this for the very things that you kept saying that, uh, you know, uh, if you were old enough to go to the library and any, any library near where you live and the library was inclined to put, oh, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye behind the library shelves, behind the librarian's desk. So you couldn't get at it unless you specifically asked for it. I mean, that, that's just an example. I don't know if every library did that. But there was a time when that when that took place, and 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 these things still happen in schools and libraries and everything else. And as you pointed out, uh, that energy previously came from the right, uh, which leads me to my second point, and that is that I have never heard anybody from the leftward side of this call cancel culture cancel culture. I never hear them say well, cancel so-and-so. I rarely hear them say that. Uh, what I do hear from people who are in, who are at that particular position, they will tell you that what they're really seeking is accountability. Uh, different degrees of accountability for the things people say and do towards those who, as you observed, are powerless or relatively powerless or outside uh, the access of power and have been historically kept from from not not even power but from access to um, to, to to basic rights uh, over over decades and centuries uh, and there's nothing wrong with that kind of accountability um, in fact uh, as you pointed out I mean it's, it's some of that corrective has been very useful and it, as it kind of eats away at some of the things some of the edifices of our culture that have put us down. But I guess I get off the train on this when this kind of thinking, whether it comes from the left or the right, refuses to take into account 
um, the different grades and levels of human possibility, okay? For the possibility of change, for the possibility of even acknowledging that we're capable of change, uh, which seems kind of counterintuitive to the very thing you're trying to affect by asking for accountability. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's those are the things that occur to me. No, I think you say that very well. I mean, uh, and so I'll give you an example of how I think this can work and should work. You guys might disagree with me about this, but um, so, and this is a much older example than the present moment, but like, you know, in the 1980s, Eddie Murphy did a lot of material that was really transphobic, or I mean, really uh, uh, homophobic, uh, and like, you know, just, you know, really out there in a way that... Uh, now people who were young and gay at that time say it was really scary to be sitting around a lot of other people laughing at that stuff while they were sitting there closeted. You know, and then I think in 1995 or 1996, he apologized for it. He said, look, that was really bad and I was a young guy and I there's a lot of stuff I didn't get, you know. And, and then ultimately, you know, Eddie Murphy's sort of back where he belongs, which is making movies like, you know, like Dolomite. And, and I mean – I think, Gene, when you're saying change, I assume that's kind of what you mean, that there could be an evolution. Yeah. I mean, the possibilities for for growth, for adjustment, because, you know, or or I think more to the point, complexity, you know, Uh, anything that kind of negates or subverts the possibility of human complexity uh, veers dangerously close to my mind to a kind of both personal and 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 a broader sense of totalitarianism, which uh, towards which I, I very much recoil. And let me just say one more thing. Um, some sometimes I think that what what African Americans tend to forget about the First Amendment and why certain things need to be said is that generations of Black painters, writers, uh, film directors poets, uh, all, all, the, all these artists have, have actually been able to move, help move the needle on progress by saying the, what, 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 saying the unsayable, saying the unsayable, okay? By saying things that most people, most of them white people, but not exclusively white people, do not want to hear when these things are said. And we have to keep remembering that that's how you move the needle and get the things you ultimately want. And to close the door because, because of some perceived, you know, uh, uh, lack of, of, uh, of decorum or lack or thoughtlessness or whatever, and just shut the iron door on it, so to speak, um, is, as I say, counterintuitive. And, 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 it, it, and it forgets the reasons we're here in the first place making these 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 pronouncements, making these changes or trying to adjust society. So I want to come back to that because it's really important. But I also want to say, have Clyde talk a little bit about just the way it's being kind of misused and misinterpreted on the right now. So uh, I'm trigger warning. We're about to play 30 seconds of Jim Jordan. If you have a problem with that, um, or if you want to change into a short sleeve shirt and a tie, I can't really give you time to do that. But um, but but this is kind of an example of now cancel culture has become something they do from Jim Jordan's point of view. Who's the cancel culture going to attack next? Think about it. Think about it. They canceled the host of The Bachelor. They canceled the star of Mandalorian. They're coming after Fox News, Newsmax, One American News. 
You see last week they tried to cancel Kermit the Frog and Mr. Potato Head? You see that? They backed off Mr. Potato Head. I think he told him his preferred pronouns were he, his, him, right? I mean, this is scary where the left wants to go. Actually, I just want to say, I was at Betty Ford with Mr. Potato Head, and he has a lot of very weird ideas that did not come out as part of that debate. But, but Clyde, um, you know, so this is now a kind of misuse of the term, I think. It is now a way of kind of branding criticism from the left. Right. So part of what I wanted to get at in the story was just language and, and the use of language and political language and how politicians get a hold of something and then they warp it and bend it to use it to their own um, political ends. So when Jim Jordan is talking about cancel culture, I mean, he is talking about, I guess, uh, liberal standards for speech and behavior, because if we're just talking about broad free free speech um, protections, I don't think they care very much about this because, you know, I looked at the the panels for uh, CPAC, the convention that Jordan was speaking at, and I think I saw eight um, panels on so-called voter integrity, but I didn't see any on Colin Kaepernick, who was actually punished for, you know, expressing his free speech during the national anthem to speak out against police brutality and racial injustice. And if your convention is called America Uncanceled, it seemed like one of the biggest examples of an actual cancellation in the five years would be something you might want to talk about, but that didn't happen. So what they're really, you know, talking about are, are liberal, liberal standards here. Um, you know, Mitt Romney, who won uh, four straw polls, he holds the record for straw polls, victories at CPAC, was uninvited. You could say he was canceled from C CPAC because he voted twice against impeachment against uh, President Donald Trump. And, you know, you can go, you, you mentioned earlier, you could go back to the Dixie Chicks. You could look at all, all types of examples of cancellations from the right. But of course, it wasn't, it wasn't called cancel culture. And what they really mean is just, you know, these are, are liberal standards that we don't agree with and we're pushing back on it. And we have labeled it cancel culture to conflate it with this thing that a lot of people are actually, um, you know, very anxious about these shifting standards for what is considered, you know, uh, polite or acceptable uh, speech in public. All right. Well, um, go, yeah, go ahead, Gene. And then we're going to grab no, a break. No, I, 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 I'm trying to think, uh, Clyde, maybe you remember this, but shortly after, um, it might have even been days after the January 6th uh, uprising, uh, or whatever else you want to call it. Um, didn't Rupert Murdoch appear at some conservative gathering and basically proclaim that the next front for for conservative energies uh, should be what he basically called cancel culture? Didn't he kind of lay out, I mean, for all these people who just decided, okay, what do we do now? Didn't he basically say, this is where we should all go right now? With Was there some kind of, maybe, I, I, um, I just, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, sure if um, I saw that, but that would make perfect sense because if anybody has a nose for where the culture wars are heading, it is, it is Rupert Murdoch. 
um, you know, he's he's kind of exploited that to, to great profit in his lifetime. And and it would make sense that, you know, Republicans would pick up on that because that is, you know, people pointed out when Joe Biden uh, was pushing for the the two trillion dollar American rescue plan. There wasn't a ton of pushback on that. You know, you had Kevin McCarthy, read, you know, releasing a video of him reading Dr. Seuss. Like that's where the energy on the Republican Party is. These <laughs> this pushback against against cultural changes. And we all know how conservative Dr. Seuss was. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, that was a an absurd one because the whole motivation came from the Dr. Seuss estate. It wasn't some group from the outside saying we right. got to do something about Dr. Seuss. But, I, you right. know, I think it's also sort of a just want to say a dumb political strategy. If Biden is really helping people across the board with kitchen table issues, so-called kitchen table issues, and you're talking about Mr. Potato Head, you're ultimately going to make yourself less relevant. I don't think it's a good strategy for conservatives at all. But that's not no. my problem. That's theirs. We got to take a quick break. Here's some Nile Rodgers. Uh, and uh, Gene and Clyde are going to be uh, back on the other side. Watching the late show, I made up my mind. Oh, a love that is great, like love should be falling behind. Oh, don't you see? You are the one. I took that. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're talking about cancel culture. Uh, we are fortunate to have with us uh, old friend Gene Seymour, a film, jazz critic, cultural critic for CNN.com, New Republic in the Nation, and we're getting to know Clyde McGrady, uh, style features writer for the Washington Post, focusing on race and identity. So uh, my goal on this show is to play clips from everybody who was in New Jack City. So uh, so we'll have Ice-T and Judd Nelson on later. Right now, Chris Rock is actually talking, uh, responding to a question about how he's dealing with cancel culture. Uh, this is on The Breakfast Club radio podcast. Hey, some things don't need to be said. Some people need to be looked out for. I definitely understand that. But um, not letting comedians work is, you know, what happens is everybody gets safe. Right. And when everybody gets safe and nobody tries anything, things get boring. Right. Absolutely. So I see a lot of unfunny comedians. I see unfunny TV shows. I see unfunny award shows. I see unfunny movies. Because <laughs> no one's, everybody's scared to like, you know, make a move. You know, and that's not a place to be. So, Gene, 
you know, I mean, this is something other people are talking about, too. If you can get in a lot of let me just say this also. If you knew the five worst things I've ever done or said, I'm a if you only knew those things. I'm probably I know a, three of them. At least you probably do. And I'm a monster based on those, you know, and the, I think one of the concerns are p- p- people are thinking I'm going to be judged by the next really stupid, dumb thing I say. And and the other 99 percent of who I am is going to go out the window. So I'm going to be super, super careful. And Gene, I mean, I know you well enough to know you really like really edgy culture. So how do we have edgy culture and that kind of caution? I think, Colin, you and I have known each other long enough to know that if there, if there's, if, if there's really one of the five rules for not just living and coping, but interacting, uh, it could be summed up in two words, no funny. Okay. No, no, that's Ken K N O W funny. Okay. Not a lot of people know funny. Okay, and it's not necessary to be funny to know funny, but I I just think that, and this is something I've talked about in other contexts. Uh, we have we have existed for the last 20, 30 years uh, in kind of an in, in kind of a crisis of the imagination, a crisis of the collective imagination, and and I think that what what happens. When, when we can no longer imagine or, or suitably imagine ourselves in situations where we can say and do things that acknowledge frailty, that acknowledge complexity, if we can't do that or even bring ourselves to imagine it, we're in trouble on several levels. And I think that much of what Chris Rock is talking about speaks to that kind of danger zone that we're in because you can't know funny without an active imagination, without a rich imagination. And I think we've suffered from that. Um, I have my own theories as to why. I, 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 as like everybody else, I blame the internet for everything, uh, much as I also embrace the internet. But I, I, I think that, that that kind of collective lack of imagination has also uh, diminished our collective will not to, not to be funny, but to even know funny when we hear it, you know? Yeah, but Clyde, it's not just funny, right? It's We want on college campuses there to, there to be quite a bit of dialogue, a pretty wide-ranging uh, uh, amount of di- dialogue. We want ideas that are somewhat unpalatable, at least to come out so we can talk about why they're unpalatable. And, and, and so it's... The stuff that Rock is talking about or that Donald Glover tweeted and erased about, it, it's it's a bigger topic than just in the world of comedy or entertainment. It, it, the question is, how do, we, how do we improve discourse without a chilling effect that drains discourse of its vitality and, and sometimes useful conflict? Oh, boy, that, that is a big question that I do not. No, I don't. Ex- um, well, no, I demand that you answer that question immediately. <laughs> But, you know, like Gene said, a lot of this stuff does <laughs> come down to the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are um, all you need to enter the public debate now is, you know, an email address and, and access to the Internet because everybody can post their thoughts and opinions on on social media now. Whereas before there were just more gatekeepers, I guess, controlling what opinions were out there. And now there aren't as many and you just have all these voices and yeah, it can get cacophonous. Um, 
at times because you know social media does kind of uh incentivize that that kind of conflict um and so it does lead to um a, a lot of a lot of uh very angry um you know moments online and people you know trying to uh shut down other people's you know i guess right to say you know uh, um something that they find objectionable i have no idea uh how to get past that i don't know if this is a passing thing or if, if things are going to get worse um i don't know i just think this is the messy uh process of you know democratically working out you know what we want our uh culture culture to be with you know lots of different people with lots of varying opinions on what that should be right well, you know and, yeah. and, and, well, i think you know uh again if you talk to people again younger people um and by younger i mean 30s at my age that 30 maybe even 40 is younger uh i think a lot of that thrashing out is taking place i think you're beginning to find people who are beginning to sort of finesse and nuance their way around. Nuance is not a verb. I'm sorry, don't hurt <laughs> me. But to begin to kind of figure out, you know, where to best spend one's energies to achieve the kind of progress that, that they might want or need. Um, and having the room to do that, uh, it helps not to be in the same state we were in the last four years, where we were all kind of on 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 on, on pins and needles, you know, uh, uh, and, and very defensive and worried and anxious about about just the social atmosphere and how volatile it was, but I think that it's it's starting to happen. I think it, it, it it's like, and it's not just people saying, "Gee, can't you take a joke," but I think it's beginning to sort of not settle down exactly. We still have thickets to go, but I think there that with growth, with knowledge, and I think certainly with knowledge of social media's limitations, uh, we're beginning to kind of figure that stuff out. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. I don't know. You might be, although I do want to say one person uh, who I think shares a lot of your views about this and tried to uh, to create exactly the atmosphere you've been describing, Gene, is this uh, Barack Obama guy. Uh, <laughs> he said this idea of this idea of purity and you're never compromised, and you're always politically woke and all that stuff. You should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. <clears throat> He's saying that in 2019. But, you know, can we just talk about our own profession for a second? I mean, we've, you know, Clyde, we've been through a thing where uh, at uh, in the New York Times, Donald McNeil uh, lost mm -hmm. his position. At Slate, Mike Pesca seems to be on, on ice I should declare Mike Pesca is one of the people I know and consider a friend because of the way they discussed the N-word, not because they mm -hmm. used it in printer or called somebody that, or, but the way they discussed it. That would, I think, put people still, to use Gene's term, on pins and needles. It's not entirely clear what the rules are uh, and, and what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, yeah, we're, we're still working. That, I mean, we're constantly working that out. I mean, particularly with a loaded word like that, I feel like the, the, the standards are, are constantly shifting, um, on that. Um, I don't know, you know, if that's, that's good or bad. Um, 
but a lot of this stuff does seem like it's it's kind of like HR uh, mm-hmm. labor issues that somehow spill out into the public because you know it's it's a media. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't I don't know exactly what what to make of of uh, of like the the whole you know the in the N word standard. I mean that's a that's a tricky one too because you, I don't think you would get even if you know at our annual black people meeting we put it on the docket i don't even think you'd get agreement on what to sorry do. i wasn't there at the last one yeah. I, I i should be better about that but you yeah. know you get you get three absences a year thank before you, you yeah. get put on yeah. probation so Good to know. Good to know. well you know yes I, I think that's really true i mean i had john mcwarder on the show last week uh and i was pointing out to him that you know i think it was katie herzog or somebody she found like 230 examples of people using the word the full word in print in Slate, none of them were Mike Pesca, and McWhorter go went. Well, I'm pretty sure one of them was me, <laughs> um, you know. And so, I mean, but 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 I, Gene, I think Clyde makes a great point, which is some of this stuff. I guess you can throw Bob Garfield into the mix now too. Is HR stuff that probably should be worked out relatively privately, except that it also touches so directly on the whole question of public public discourse that there's a kind of countervailing need for yeah. for an airing. No, I totally agree with that. I really do. Um, I'm sorry I keep talking about my age and everything else, but but I, but well, I often, who can blame you, really? I, I, no, I, it's, it's kind of unavoidable. But I, I always find myself going back to Lenny Bruce, who has always been a kind of nettlesome figure about this. And of course, he has often he was famous for saying that if you that not only should you not avoid using the n-word openly but you should keep saying it and saying it say because his feeling was that the more you use certain terms the less impact they have yeah i think i think what he did he said he wished the president of the united states would come on and just see the word over and over and over again 200 times until it could never make a a a kid cry cry. well i mean i i i have come to the I, I have aged into the feeling that that's not as no. simple as it sounds. <laughs> not going to work. Not going to work. But, but there's another Lenny Bruce quote that I often use that, that isn't used as often that I often think applies to this, particularly the case where if you're using it as part of the way you're telling a story about racism, to use that word. Um, and that is, uh, he wants, Lenny Bruce said that, a knowledge of syphilis isn't an invitation to get it, okay? <laughs> and and I think that that, uh, in a way, sort of sums up where I am on that aspect of the dilemma. That if you, if you, if it is necessary for you to use that as an instrument for demonstrating why the sentiments behind it are bad, are evil, then by all means, it is necessary to do that. Uh, that, that 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 that's kind of where I fall, you know, on that score. Well, on that lovely and infectious note, uh, I think we have to stop. Unfortunately, okay. I'd love to talk to you guys some more, but we've got uh, a final segment to do here with Alice Dreger. So thanks so much to these uh, two terrific uh, gentlemen who've joined me uh, here today: Gene Seymour, whom I have known for most of the, his great and long age uh, that he keeps referring to, and Clyde McGrady, who I'm pleased to know now, style uh, feature writer for the Washington Post, fo- focusing on race and identity. We'll be back after this. While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you 
So as usual, I'm on this journey with uh, two uh, people uh, helping me down the road. One of them is Kat Pastor. She's the technical director and technical producer of this uh, particular show and many others here on this station. Uh, she is uh, the queen of no drama. She just figures it out and gets it done. And I love that. Uh, and uh, Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, responsible for so much of what we do that is good. Uh, and she's the producer of this particular episode. So uh, time to talk about, so now you've been canceled. Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Well, you might wind up talking to Alice Dreger, a writer, historian, journalist, and local news publisher with a PhD in history of science. Her best-known book is Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, uh, and One Scholar's Search for Justice. Justice, and her bylines include the New York Times, Wired Magazine, and The Atlantic. And she has written about this and been written about in terms of this, uh, particularly in the New York Times piece. The, uh, those people we tried to cancel, they're all hanging out together. Alice Dreger, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, maybe you want to just quickly, uh, in, in a thumbnail, explain why your name would come up at all in terms of a conversation about cancel culture? Yeah, so I've been canceled multiple times, and obviously I'm still alive. Uh, the book I did, Galileo's Middle Finger, which was published in 2015, is the story of my own experience of having been somebody who worked in intersex rights and LGBT rights, and then did a history of a controversy over transgenderism and had some transgender activists come after me and try to completely change my identity online and make me out to be a right-wing eugenicist um, hater. And that experience sort of sent me down this rabbit hole where I ended up talking with a lot of other scholars who had been through similar experiences where their research had offended somebody and they had been sort of reconstructed in the public eye. And this was before the term cancel culture was actually out in the vernacular. And it was also before John Ronson's excellent book, So You've Been Socially Shamed. So I ended up traveling around the country talking with a lot of scholars who had been through this experience. And I've been an activist myself, so I'm very sensitive to the idea that we have to hold people accountable. But the book I wrote was trying to understand kind of how do we toe that line between searching for justice and searching for truth and having researchers and activists, but without killing each other. So because of that, I ended up being contacted by yet more people who had been subject to attacks. And over the years, since I've written about that, more and more people have contacted me over the years. So I've ended up with a uh, large circle of people that I know who have been in the doghouse. You know, um, one of the people that you've been contacted by and talked to, I, I think, and uh, who's kind of a figure in all this and was in the New York Times piece was Katie Herzog, who's had some similar adventures. But I was struck by a line you know, of hers in the Times piece. She said, uh, there have been attempts to cancel me, but I cannot be canceled because I refuse to be canceled. And that gets to an, an interesting question that I think you've explored, too, uh, which is, you know, if you're a relatively strong person with, um, and you don't have like a lot of other kind of, I don't know, underlying neuroses and worries and depression and uh, obsessive qualities, you're probably going to get through something like this better. There's a way in which this preys the most significantly. And I have one friend who really did sort of experience that. If you have a little bit of a tendency towards self-laceration or depression, uh, this can really get inside you in a way that maybe a Katie Herzog could shrug off. 
I am a friend with Katie and I wonder to what extent she's acting as if it doesn't really (laughs) affect her. You know, Katie is a funny story because the way Katie got into the doghouse was that she was working on a piece that turned out to be a really excellent piece about um, women who had transitioned to become men, but then had decided to retransition back because it didn't work for them. And she interviewed me for that piece because I work on gender issues and um, our mutual friend, Dan Savage had recommended that she speak to me. And when she was doing the interview with me for that piece, I said, you're going to get slaughtered for this. And she said, oh no, I'm a journalist. You know, it's a straightforward journalistic piece. I said, no, you're going to get slaughtered. So here's what you do after you publish this piece and you get slaughtered, come back to me and I'll tell you how you recoup your life. And she, she was laughing at me. And I said, no, really, just do that. And I'll send you my book at that point. And you'll read my book at that point, And you'll understand what you're going through. And that's exactly what happened. She published the piece. Uh, a group came at her, it basically upended her life completely, led to her completely switching what she does to looking at blocked and canceled people. And I sent her my book and she read it and she said it was really eerie because she felt like it was describing her own life. And that's what I've heard from a lot of people. So, you know, I almost feel like I got her into that horrible situation. But at the same time, I think she has been a real champion of this stuff. And you're right. She's very strong. She's psychologically very strong. I'm also psychologically very strong. But I have to tell you that these kinds of experiences have absolutely led me into depressive episodes and have led me into situations where I have felt completely and utterly overwhelmed. Yeah, and I think the fact that good intentions are, are, are not a defense, uh, that past history tends to be not much of an offense, and that there's kind of a very, very quick rush to – I'll pick a very unpalatable example because he kind of is emerging in, uh, as an unpleasant person in other ways. But this young high school kid from Kentucky, Nicholas Sandman, who was in this weird sort of set to on the National Mall, and, and there was some video that made it look like he was kind of smirking at this Native American guy. And, you know, as, that, as, the, as all of the media organizations kind of pulled back and began to understand what happened, it really was the case that they hadn't understood what was happening. But in that sort of little tiny window of judgment where everybody on their phones was making up their mind about this person and what they wanted to do with him. You know, I mean, in in a way, it is not too bad an example of what can happen to people, which is you just don't get a chance to explain who you are. That's right. And it's really bad when it's combined with the collapse of journalism in the United States, actually all over the world. But I think that's part of why we're seeing this moment of effective cancellation of a lot of people, because we've had the defunding of the journalistic system through the Internet, basically disrupting the way journalism was always funded, which was advertising. Uh, Online advertising doesn't pay very well. And so basically the old system of print media and television media and radio media that used to be funded through a much more direct intervention system has now had the economic rug pulled out from under it. And the consequence is newspapers all over the country are closing, news organizations are cutting back on journalists. So when you get a situation where you have a flashpoint item, like somebody having said something supposedly offensive You don't have reporters out there figuring out what really happened until after there's already been a firestorm and people's lives have been consumed. So I I think the moment of cancellation we're seeing has something in part to do with the trouble that journalism is in right now in terms of its economic situation. Yeah, I'd double down on that and say that everything that you just said is true. 
But I was just reading on Quillette, which is another place you go to sort of learn about all this kind of stuff, uh, about a book called, uh, and the title says a lot, I think it's called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns or something. Because there's another journalistic problem, which is it's way easier to write about Mr. Potato Head or, you know, or or some less ludicrous example maybe of cancel culture uh, than it is to really look at systemic problems and try to figure out, you know, what the, what the underlying problem is. In other words, like all of the trans stuff that you're talking about right now, well, it's much easier to jump on a quote or a thing somebody said or a mistake somebody made or a dumb joke that somebody made than it is to look at the whole continuum of issues. Absolutely. And people like people who consume news like treating it as if it's a sporting game. So they like watching the scrum and they like the debates and the bifurcations. And editors and producers have to respond to that because if that's what the audience wants, then at some level they have to give the audience at least some of what it wants. And honestly, it's part of the reason why my response to being canceled nationally over and over again has been in part to pull back and run a tiny little news organization for the city I live in, which is East Lansing, Michigan. And I now write about bond financing. I write about policing reform. And I write about that kind of stuff because I kind of feel like at least at the local level, I can sort of find enough people who get that we should not be spending every day watching the latest slaughter, that it makes more sense to actually pay attention to things like government accountability and things like police response and these kinds of things. But it's it's really difficult to get people engaged with news that they're not finding entertaining. And that's that's part of where we've gone. You know, the whole system that the news shifted to with things like Fox News creating infotainment has really created this problem where people don't see news as something that's supposed to be difficult to read, uncomfortable to read, hard to understand. What they really want is that sort of daily drama scrum. And it's it's a huge problem for us in the, this nation in particular, I think. And the, the other thing that's really clear, and, and I want to maybe reserve the rest of our time for you to talk about this, is we have a good process, a good process, I have good in quotes, I guess, for taking somebody down, you know, and, and for identifying somebody who, who apparently needs, you know, to be, to be sanctioned, punished, maybe almost erased from culture. We don't have a good process for adjudicating all this or figuring out how, how you do maybe get that person other than, you know, everybody runs over to Substack and starts a newsletter. But um, it, it seems as though we don't have any way of talking this through in a more constructive means. But you spend a lot of time, I don't know, trying to help people who are in this position. I just share whatever thoughts you have about it. I do. I mean, the the number one fear I always have is that people will kill themselves because some people who have been through this situation do kill themselves. And, you know, the first thing I do on the phone with people when I'm talking to them is don't listen to that voice that tells you if you kill yourself, the people who have come after you will be apologetic and they will feel bad for what they've done because they will not feel bad for what they've done and you will be dead. And so just stop that voice from repeating over and over again in your head that that's the solution to this problem and begin to recognize that your life as you've known it has shifted dramatically. I often liken it to cancer. And I tell people, you know, the happy story of cancer that we hear out in the culture is you get cancer and you fight cancer and you go back to being who you were. The truth is, if you talk to anybody who's survived a brutal cancer is they're not the same person as they were before. They are fragile. They recognize the fragility of their life. They are dependent on a different group of people than they were at the beginning. Their bodies are in many ways wrecked. 
And so that's what's about to happen to you is you're going to go through this situation where basically you have to fight a disease for a while and it is going to be awful and people will abandon you who are afraid of what you're going through. And some people will stick with you and every day will be unpredictable and it will be hard to be the person that you were. And little by little, you're going to reconstruct yourself to be a different person and it'll be the person you were before, but it will be a changed person. And I talk with them about doing little steps, doing things like shrinking your life down, cutting off social media, stopping the places where the negativity comes in and tries to destroy you over and over again, as much as possible, trying to just make a to-do list at the beginning of every day and get through that to-do list and make sure on the list is things like exercise and eat lunch and eat dinner and take a shower and brush your teeth. I mean, these are the sorts of basic things people have to learn to do when they are going through these things, because it is really, really disruptive to your brain. When you have your identity reconstructed, it is an extremely psychologically jarring experience. And the people who have been through the worst versions of it have something like PTSD. I mean, I still have a situation where sometimes when I open my mail, I start having sweats because I see something that looks like I'm about to go through another round. And it's really hard to go through these things. I mean, the most recent one I was telling your producer when we were doing our pre-interview about uh, having gone through a situation recently where a group of archivists came after me for a humor piece that I wrote. And it sent me down into a new set of depression. And I just asked the place that published it, which is Chronicle of Higher Education, to retract it because I didn't want to deal with it. And they did not retract it. But it was a stupid little humor piece where a group of people just started coming after me online, on my email, the whole thing, making threats to me that I would not be allowed in archives again. And I'm a historian, so being in archives <laughs> is really important to me. But it was just a horror show. I mean, I, I it sounds so trivial. And when I tell people who are canceled, who are calling me up because they're in the midst of cancellation, I'm trying to walk them through it. When I tell them that story, they start laughing and I get it. I'm like, you don't picture librarians with pitchforks and torches in part because librarians have always been the keeper of the idea of freedom of knowledge. But having them come after me was so disorienting and dislocating. And I really had to like start all over again and, and do all the stuff that I do to keep myself from slipping into major depression. Yeah, I, I think I was reading about your, your experience there. I was thinking about Matt Grenning, who was the creator of The Simpsons. And before that had a comic strip called Life is Hell, Life, in, Life is Hell, I think. And there were these two protagonists who were identical looking. I think their names were Jeff and Akbar. And people would say, well, and they wore fezes. And they would, they would say, well, what are they? Are they twins? Are they gay? Are they? Muslims? Are they little people? And Grenning would say, whichever possibility offends you the most. But I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think you can do that anymore. We have to stop anyway. But Alice Dreger, thank you so much. Alice Dreger, writer, historian, journalist. Uh, her best known book is Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and One Scholar's Search for Justice. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan again for tackling this tough subject. Thanks for, to Kat for keeping it moving. <laughs> 